Hello and welcome to New Things Under the Sun. I'm Matt Clancy. This week's podcast, Entrepreneurship is Contagious. Is entrepreneurship contagious? Let's consider a few cases. So there's two different teams of scientists and they make substantially the same discovery at roughly the same time. Now, but one of the teams goes on to found a startup based on the idea and the other doesn't. Why? Marks and Sue 2021 study basically this situation. They identify about 20,000 such twin discoveries by finding cases where there are two papers by two different teams published within a year of each other, and they each share a large portion of the same subsequent citations, and they're each cited at least one time in the same parenthetical block. So, for example, parentheses, Clancy 2021, Marks and Sue 2021, and parentheses were just lumped together in the text with no other explanation. And that's kind of an indication that the papers can each be cited with no elaboration necessary uh, to justify the exact same kind of claim. So Marks and Sue go on to identify a couple hundred cases where these discoveries are subsequently commercialized via a startup, and they look to see what factors are correlated with the decision to commercialize the discovery. One such factor is if one of the scientists who made the discovery has a history of commercialization. And that's not surprising. Scientists who have commercialized their research before are probably more likely to do it again. But more intriguing, they also find that if one of the scientists making the discovery has previously collaborated with a scientist with a history of commercialization, the discovery is more likely to be commercialized in that case too, even if the discovering scientist doesn't themselves have a history of commercialization. It's as if the entrepreneurship bug jumped from one co-author to the other. Now we can broaden this line of inquiry to workplaces in general with Nanda and Sorensen 2010. So Nanda and Sorensen, they track about 270,000 workers in Denmark over the period 1990 to 1997. And each of these workers has no prior history of entrepreneurship before 1990, and they are newly hired by an established employer in 1990. For each of these individuals, Sorensen and Nanda count how many of their co-workers were entrepreneurs during the previous five years and for how long they were entrepreneurs. They then see how the presence of formerly entrepreneurial co-workers affects the subsequent decision of an individual to start their own business. Again, people whose co-workers have a history of entrepreneurship are more likely to go on to be entrepreneurs themselves. Now, one weakness of this data is that Nanda and Sorensen only know if people worked at the same establishment. They don't know if the coworkers ever had any actual interaction. But it is reasonable to assume that people are more likely to interact with their coworkers when they both work at small establishments. And a figure in the newsletter, which you can't see, looks at how important it is to have one of these entrepreneurial coworkers in different sized establishments. And it makes the biggest difference in the smallest establishments, which is the settings where we think it's most likely that you had a genuine interaction with this entrepreneurial coworker. Now we can broaden this further to whole communities as well. Gianetti and Simonov, 20 or 2009, look at how the rate of entrepreneurship in an individual's local neighborhood affects their decision to become an entrepreneur. Using a sample of 289 Swedish municipalities, Gianetti and Simonov show residents are more likely to become new entrepreneurs this year when there were more existing entrepreneurs in the neighborhood last year. And this is also true for people who did not grow up in the neighborhood, but only moved there later in life. Now, in all three cases, 
we can ask, did people catch the entrepreneurship bug from their peers? But the big challenge in this literature is establishing that this association is causal, that interacting with entrepreneurs makes people more likely to become entrepreneurs. It could, for example, be merely that aspiring entrepreneurs seek out actual entrepreneurs to be around. Maybe scientists who are interested in someday commercializing their research are drawn to work with serial entrepreneurs. Maybe some kinds of companies are appealing both to people aspiring to start a business and to people who have started a business. And maybe aspiring entrepreneurs move to neighborhoods where entrepreneurship is common in the same way aspiring actors move to Hollywood. If any of those, in any of those situations, the correlation between social exposure to entrepreneurship and then subsequent entrepreneurship is going to be spurious. It's not that entrepreneurship is contagious, it's just that entrepreneurial types cluster. This is not a problem the papers are unaware of. Marx and Hsu, 2021, don't present their results as causal. Nanda and Sorensen and Gianetti and Simonoff both try a bunch of different statistical tricks to reduce the likelihood that the results can be explained just by entrepreneurial types preferring to cluster together. To take one example, Nanda and Sorensen show that their results hold even if you control for the number of entrepreneurs working at a company at the time an employee decided to work there, and so might have based their decisions on those people being there, and if instead you just focus on new people who were hired after the focal individual started working there. And they find the same result in that case. But even there, you know, you could imagine it's something about the workplace that's drawing all these types together. It's In general, it's hard to do this in a really airtight way. One way to rule out the possibility that people predisposed to become entrepreneurs seek each other out is to look at settings where people form relationships, but they don't have any say in the relationships they form. One such setting is your family. Lindquist, Sol, and von Prague, 2015, study the career decisions of Swedish children born before 1970 to parents who were born after 1920. They find the children of entrepreneurs are about 12 percentage points more likely to be entrepreneurs at some point in their life than the children of non-entrepreneurs. Now, obviously children can't choose their parents, but with families, we also have to worry about a lot of other factors that might be confounding this. Specifically, uh, we might think this is just all about genes. Perhaps the children of entrepreneurs merely inherit their or merely inherit their parents' taste for risks and autonomy, and it's this shared preference that leads both parents and their children to disproportionately choose to become entrepreneurs. But the cool thing about Lindquist, Sol, and von Prague's paper is that they have very good data on about 4,000 Swedish adoptees, which lets them parcel out the effects of gene which derive from your birth parents, and the effects of being raised by an entrepreneur, which derives from your adoptive parents. Both matter. Adoptees with an entrepreneurial birth parent are about four percentage points more likely to be entrepreneurs at some point than those without entrepreneurial birth parents. But children whose adoptive parent is an entrepreneur are about eight percentage points more likely to become entrepreneurs themselves. So genes seem to be part of it, maybe a third, but the rest is coming from being raised by an entrepreneur. Now, that still doesn't necessarily mean entrepreneurship is contagious. Maybe the children of entrepreneurs are more likely to become entrepreneurs simply because they have a family business to inherit, or maybe they've got access to cheap loans from mom and dad. Lindquist, Sol, and Von Prague look at all, they look a bit at all these options, and they try to rule them out in various ways. For example, they show that inheriting the family business is actually pretty rare, and that the wealth of parents doesn't affect the decision to be an entrepreneur, which suggests it's not really about access to cheap loans. 
but we can also look at other papers where the social influence channel might matter, but things like inheritance or cheap loans probably don't. Easley and Wang, 2017, use an experiment to see what happens when people get close contact with an entrepreneur. One of the authors of this paper teaches a 10-week university class on innovation and entrepreneurship. As part of the class, students work in small teams with a pair of mentors from industry on a startup project. Now, randomly, Easley and Wang say, make it so that some of these teams are matched with mentors who are entrepreneurs themselves, and others are matched with mentors who aren't entrepreneurs. Easley and Wang track these students for two years after graduating to see if they found or go on to join a small startup. And then they compare the rate at which students who were paired with entrepreneurs become entrepreneurs themselves with the control group of students paired with non-entrepreneurs. And they find students who are randomly assigned an entrepreneurial mentor founded or joined a startup 37% of the time compared to 28% of the time for those who were randomly assigned a non-entrepreneur mentor. Are those numbers plausible? Well, you know, compared to spending an entire childhood with a parent who's an entrepreneur, in this case, the students were spending just five to seven hours on average in collaboration with their mentor. But it does seem likely that those collaborative hours meant a lot to the students. They self-assessed the mentoring portion of the class as one of the most important. And, you know, these students are part of a population who's curious about entrepreneurship. I mean, they did choose to take this class and they're working with a mentor on an industry that they're interested in working in. All right, so that's two cases where people have no say in the decision to form a relationship with an entrepreneur, but most of the time that's not going to be the case. But it is the case a lot in life that we might form associations with people for reasons that are quite incidental to their entrepreneurship. And so let's look at one of those cases next. Azule, Stewart, and Liu, 2017, look at elite academic life scientists, and they study, they study whether being mentored by a scientist who commercializes their research uh, by getting a patent, leads their postdocs to do the same. And as you might expect, given the results we've discussed above, it does. But Azule Stewart and Liu's paper is much more about trying to really nail down the argument that this effect is not driven by entrepreneurial scientists seeking each other out. To establish that students do not select postdoc mentors based on the commercial orientation of the advisor, Azule Stewart and Liu focus their study on academic life scientists who are selected to be Pew Scholars or Searle Scholars uh, up through the year 2000. Now, one reason to focus on this group is the existence of something called the Pew Scholar Oral History and Archives, which is a set of oral life histories available for 200 of these Pew Scholars. So Azule, Stewart, and Liu read a sample of 62 such histories, and each of these is long, you know, between 100 and 400 pages, to see what kinds of factors Pew scholars self-report as being important in their decisions about which postdoc mentor to work with. The overwhelmingly most important factor cited is the scientific topic that the mentor is investigating, followed by the geography of where the lab is located, the advisor's prestige in the field, and to some extent, interpersonal rapport. Nobody mentioned the commercial orientation of the advisor or having an interest in patenting. And this isn't simply because they're shy to talk about non-academic goals. When asked about their own patents in these oral histories, interviewees are apparently quite candid. Azule, Stewart, and Liu used this qualitative analysis to form the basis of some additional quantitative exercises. They come up with measures of scientific similarity, geographic proximity, and prestige, and they use these to derive statistical models of the matching process between postdocs and mentors. 
and then they can see if matches that are poorly explained by these stated factors seem to be unusually correlated with the decision to patent, which would be evidence that people left their true motivations, you know, a desire to work with a scientist who patents, unstated. But they don't really find any evidence of this. The statistics back up what the scholars themselves say. Recent graduates don't really think about patenting when they're deciding who they're going to work with for their postdocs. But it does turn out that if they accidentally end up working with an advisor who has a history of patenting, they're more likely to patent themselves later in their career. So far, that's all pretty consistent with the thesis that entrepreneurship is contagious. Entrepreneurs are found in clusters, at least partially because entrepreneurs exert an influence over their otherwise non-entrepreneurial peers. You can see this when you randomly match students to entrepreneurs, when top scientists get incidentally matched with more entrepreneurial advisors, and when children get placed in the care of entrepreneurial parents. In all three cases, the exposed are more likely to become entrepreneurs themselves than people who are not exposed. But to close, let's look at one more study whose results muddy or challenge the above. Lerner and Malmendiar, 2013, exploit another natural experiment where some groups are more exposed to entrepreneurs than others. In their case, they look at nearly 6,000 students who attended Harvard Business School over 1997 to 2004. Now, in Harvard Business School for your first year, the school administration breaks each incoming class into sections of 80 to 95 students. Students take all their classes with this cohort, and they typically form strong social bonds with other students in that section. Importantly, while the assignment of students to different sections isn't random, the school endeavors to give each section a roughly representative cross-section of various backgrounds, students don't have any say in the matter, and their prior experience with entrepreneurship is not a factor considered by the school. So that means there is some variation across sections. In some sections, 0% of the students have a prior history of entrepreneurship, and in other sections, more than 10% of the students in the section do. Within each section, Lerner and Malmendiar look to see what share of students who were not previously entrepreneurs state that their post-graduation plan is to found a company, or they're going to continue working on one they founded during school. Now, if we've just got a simple model where entrepreneurship is contagious, and that's the whole story, then we're going to expect to see more students opt to found companies if they're in sections where more of their peers are entrepreneurs in the past. But in fact, the opposite is true in this case. If you plot a scatter plot, where on the horizontal axis, we've got the share of your classmates who were entrepreneurs before coming to the business school. And on the vertical axis, we've got the share of students who have not previously been entrepreneurs, but then go on to become them. Well, there's a, negative, a pretty clear negative relationship between those two. So what's going on? One obvious response might be, well, you know, the kinds of entrepreneurs who quit their company and then go to get an MBA are those who weren't very successful. And so maybe they dissuaded their peers through their sort of bad experiences with entrepreneurship. But no, actually the kinds of entrepreneurs who get into Harvard Business School are pretty good at what they do, significantly better than the population at large at least, and they frequently sold their companies for a large profit before they went on to get an MBA. Moreover, separating out exposure to successful entrepreneurs and failed entrepreneurs doesn't really change the results of the paper. Lerner and Malmendier instead provide a variety of evidence that entrepreneurs attending Harvard Business School serve to discourage their peers from founding businesses that are unlikely to succeed. It turns out the high levels of entrepreneurship seen in sections with few entrepreneurs consist of more often of bad entrepreneurs, at least in the sense that their businesses are more likely to fail. Lerner and Malmendier suggest in this case, the primary effect of having entrepreneurs around is that they prevent 
inexperienced students from forming doomed businesses. And those students instead seem to slot themselves into alternative, non-entrepreneurial careers. Okay, so that's plausible, but then why doesn't this happen in all the other cases? Well, probably the best answer is more research is needed. We just don't know. But I am going to hazard a guess. I suspect entrepreneurship is only contagious to people who wouldn't normally consider it. Maybe, for most people, starting a new business is literally unthinkable, in the literal sense that they just don't think of doing it. But being around someone who's done it plants the seed in your mind that, hey, this is a possibility. This is something you could really do. For most of the studies here, the population that's being exposed to entrepreneurship is a population that's sort of like the normal population that doesn't normally consider becoming an entrepreneur. And for them, being exposed to the idea has this measurable positive effect. But students getting an MBA at Harvard Business School aren't typical people. Maybe they're a group that is constantly exposed to the idea of starting a business, both from alumni and from teachers and their classes. And they're the kind of people that have the self-assured confidence that they could successfully start a business if they wanted to. That's a group that doesn't need an injection of confidence that, hey, you could do this too. Instead, what has the biggest impact on them is a trusted peer telling them, actually, your idea is kind of dumb. That's not conclusive, obviously, that's just my speculation, but next time I'm going to try and look at some other evidence that I think is uh, supportive of this role modeling effect. Thanks for listening. And now it's time for the standard end of the episode boilerplate. You've been listening to a podcast from New Things Under the Sun, a living literature review with the mission of communicating what academia knows about innovation in accessible but rigorous research syntheses. New Things Under the Sun is a living literature review, which means I go back and update these research syntheses as new research is published or I discover it. The podcast you listen to is taken from the first published version of one of these syntheses. To see if there's been any updates about the claims made in this podcast or to learn more about this project, head to newthingsunderthesun.com.